Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. It's not a case about you know, disputed liability where people are you know, fighting it out for who's wrong. It was clearly the hospital that was wrong. And at times it was a little degrading, or no, it was really degrading, you know, having to argue or advocate on my client's behalf when his injuries were so obvious and so immense and so catastrophic. And so I just really wanted to hit home to them, like, hey, you're not just giving him, you know, the money that he's owed. You know, you're telling him that, you know, you have a voice, that you were wrong, and we heard you, and we appreciate you, and we're taking in everything that you've been going through and we're going to respectfully evaluate the case, analyze the case, and give you what we think is fair. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, Yvonne, it's been a, a little bit of time since we've talked. It has. We uh, we told people we'd be slowing down on the new uh, episodes a little bit, but we... Boy, did we, we really slowed down? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we, we really, we, we really we, followed through on that slowing down. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, nobody can, uh, nobody can claim that uh, that we weren't being uh, honest with them. And we, we just, man, we really hit a uh, hit a slow patch. But uh, but we are going to try and uh, try and get more uh, podcasts scheduled so we can at least be getting out some new episodes. But um, uh, but anyways, it's. Um, it's good to be back, and uh, and usually you're in Atlanta, Vaughn. Usually you're a long ways away, but uh, today you're uh, directly downstairs from me. That's right. We are in the same building, and uh, we and we picked. A, so that's fun. That's a fun way to sort of kick things up again in 2024. And we have a very interesting, very different from our kind of usual uh, case to talk about. So it's, it'll be a fun one. Yeah, no, and 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 a, and a very excited, exciting one. Um, so uh, let me go ahead and introduce our guest. Our our uh, guest is uh, Jordan Strakovsky. I may, I know, I'm screwing that up, Jordan. I'm sorry. <laughs> Strakovsky and Jordan is with the is with Strakovsky LLC. Uh, you can look him up at actionafterinjury.com. Uh, that's his website. Uh, Jordan is based out of uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, and has had uh, just a tremendous uh, uh, verdict on a med mal case uh, with some really interesting twists, uh, especially uh, one that we'll get into right at the beginning, which is that uh, he worked so hard on this medical malpractice case that the defense admitted liability uh, right from the beginning, it, which uh, for our listeners who try med mal cases, that is almost uh, never done. I've tried a bunch of them. I've never had that happen. Um, and, uh, well, so, not right from the, yeah. not right from the beginning, but like the first day of trial. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. No. And I, yeah. I should yeah. have been, I should have been clear about that. I mean, it was after four and a half years of hard work by Jordan, uh, on the case. So it's not like they just, uh, uh, rolled over immediately. He had to work his ass off for a long time. Uh, and then they came into the courtroom and as a strategic <laughs> move, uh, it decided to admit liability. But um, but Jordan, let me tell everybody a little bit about you. Um, so Jordan, uh, as I said, is from uh, is from Philadelphia and uh, went to uh, Temple University undergrad, which is interesting because the uh, defendant in this case was Temple University Hospital. So Jordan, I'm assuming, is very familiar with that hospital uh, and then uh, went on to uh, uh, the 
Weidner, Weidner University or Weidner Law Widener. School, Widener. God, man, I knew I'm going to screw up the pronunciation. So Widener, <laughs> Widener School of Law at Delaware University, where he graduated number one in his class, the valedictorian. And I actually, uh, I actually watched uh, uh, Jordan's uh, valid his graduation speech, after which the governor said that he would never want to follow Jordan again, giving a, giving a speech. And, uh, and, and with a great theme, Jordan's theme throughout was, look how far we've come. And I, I got to say, for somebody who uh, was brand new out of law school, very polished, very uh, effective, and just... Um, uh, just came across as somebody who'd been doing this thing for years. So uh, that's where he got his that's where he got his law degree. He then went on and got his LLM in trial advocacy again from Temple University. And I wonder if Temple is just regretting the fact that they helped him uh, become a lawyer. You know, now that uh, he, he went out and got this verdict. <laughs> But uh, but Jordan has been has been practicing law uh, in in all kinds of cases, not only medical malpractice, but in uh, product liability. And um, I, I saw that you did some uh, volunteer work for victims of sex abuse, and uh, and did a lot of other pro bono and volunteer work. He's on the board of directors of the uh, Pennsylvania Pennsylvania Association of Justice, uh, and um, has just been doing uh, really great work. And uh, so we're happy to have Jordan on the show. So welcome, Jordan. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's uh, this case. I mean, as I was reading it, I was just like, wow, I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe it. But uh, let, let me just give a, a quick background of the case. And Jordan, where I've made some mistakes, you can go ahead and correct me. But uh, this case involved, uh, as I've said, Temple University Hospital and the uh, and a doctor by the name of Matthew Lorai, who is an orthopedic surgeon there. And uh, Jordan's client was Eddie Parks. Eddie, on December 30th of 2018, uh, was assaulted and kicked in the leg. And I guess unbeknownst, or maybe not unbeknownst, but he his knee became dislocated there and his uh, popliteal artery was transected. Uh, and essentially, when he came into uh, the, the hospital, uh, he was claiming that his uh, foot felt numb. He had 10 out of 10 pain. Uh, the uh, doctors did actually uh, consider compartment syndrome, which is essentially uh, because of uh, swelling, the, the, the uh, blood supply is cut off, but they didn't um, diagnose it uh, uh, soon enough. And, um, and long story short is uh, that Eddie ended up spending 39 days in the hospital went through uh, six different debridement uh, uh, procedures of necrotic tissue uh, until they finally were not able to save uh, Eddie's leg and uh, had to do a through-the-knee amputation, uh, which is I mean, it, it usually here of above-the-knee or below-the-knee amputation. They actually did a through-the-knee amputation for the purposes of fitting for prosthetics. My understanding is that that is similar to an above-the-knee uh, amputation and and harder to hard, harder to get uh, a good prosthetic and harder to treat. Um, Eddie was 27 years old. He was a certified nursing assistant. Uh, ha had a, uh, a a girlfriend and had just received news that he was going to be a father. Um, and um, loved to cook. And uh, as Jordan said in his opening statement, that on January 22nd of 2019. Uh, as he was being wheeled into the operating room, everything changed uh, because he lost his leg. Uh, and um, 
just a, a, a catastrophic injury. Um, and the the really uh, there's a lot of interesting things here, but but the thing that that is so shocking here is that on the day of trial, uh, which was four and a half years after the case had been um, had been filed. So this, uh, if I remember right, the the verdict came out on May 9 of 2023. So May of 2023 is when the trial was. Uh, the defendants, the hospital, and the doctor admitted liability, admitted that they didn't uh, diagnose um, uh, uh, the the artery uh, being transected, and that that was the reason that uh, the Eddie lost his leg. So I, I guess I'll start there, Jordan. When uh, when you came to trial, was your expectation to be trying a full three-week case proving up liability, or did you have word that they were going to admit liability? I had word about a week before trial um, that they were going to admit liability. So I was spending months and months and months uh, working up you know, my opening and my case, focusing on liability. And then I got a call saying, we're for Dr. Lurie, at least, we're going to admit liability. And I even remember thinking, well, let me let me think that through. If, right. if yeah. I'm okay with that, it's like it's nothing to be okay about. We're admitting liability, <laughs> um, and then they also wanted me to release some of the other uh, physicians and a physician's assistant involved, uh, which which I did after they said Dr. Lorai would would stipulate the liability. And I guess Dr. Lorai was it stipulate, or he was an agent or an employee of the hospital. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's so well, funny because I, I read the complaint first, like typically like when I'm prepping for the episode, I I, some, I go somewhat in chronological order unless there's like a press or a news story or something like you had where I read that first. But so reading the complaint. But and by I the way, I realize, don't, I, I start at the end. I look at the verdict first and then I go, go backwards. But and then no, you go, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> I just was going to say that I, in reading it, Steve, right? Like I'm, I'm automatically thinking about our cases and the stuff you have to fight in med mal over and over again. And like, what's the causation argument? Are they going to be, are they going to say it was going to result in the injury would have had to result in an amputation anyway, you know, just sort of thinking through like how it was going to play out because it's just, that's what you always have to do in med mouse. There's always a fight over the standard of care, a fight over the proximate cause. Like, so I was so shocked <laughs> when, when I got to, you know, basically the, the transcripts of opening and read that liability had been admitted. I was like, what I mean, I can't imagine how you felt, Jordan, just knowing how intense that work is with the experts um, and the depositions to kind of, you know, tee up all those issues about standard of care and causation to then not have that any of that be part of the trial. I, I just can't imagine how that feels. There's not really a question in there other than yeah. I just like... <laughs> How I, I just, how do you kind of like, I mean, I guess you kind of had a heads up, but like, how do you just retool everything? How do you prep your client for that? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, as uh, spending months and months and months uh, preparing the liability aspect and then to be told, you know, we're going to admit liability, I definitely felt like the winds were taken out of my sail, so to speak. Right. Um, and I'm kind of like, now what? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, every, everything about my case is, has changed. And, and um, 
you know, frankly, I was, I really felt like I had a great liability cases, you know, the more and more I spent, you know, preparing for trial. And I was like, wow, they kind of just took all the the juice that I had going for me. And, uh, you know, I had some surprises for their, uh, their expert witnesses too, that I don't think they were aware of. Um, and I really thought the jury would have lost all credibility, um, which I think would have also helped uh, with the damages aspect of the case. And so, yeah, when, when I heard about it, you know, you have to, I think it would have been really brazen of me to say, no, we're, I'm not going to allow you to do this. Or I'm still going to try my case or right. bring in the other doctors. I'm not done with them. Like we're going to, we're going to hold them accountable as well. It's, you know, somebody gives you a win like that. You really don't have much of a choice, but to take it. But I was really thinking for a day or so, like, wow, this is actually quite effective. Cause before in my mind, it's like, I'm going to, these guys, I'm going to get them for 50 million. I mean, that might be crazy. Right. But that's that was my mindset. Like they're gonna they're gonna pay for this, um, and uh, they then my whole strategy had to change. But I mean, the damages obviously in this case were immense. So uh, fortunately, the trial was postponed a week because all of my liability experts were slated to come in, and all my damages experts were slated to come the following week. So uh, fortunately, the court said, "Okay, you have you know a week." before uh, we'll do jury selection. So that allowed me enough time to, to pivot and reorganize everything about my case. Right. And I guess, gotcha. I mean, there must have been some sense when you were doing the expert depositions of the defense that that things were going well. Uh, I mean, it, you know, I, I, I'm not sure the defense counsel or, or the other side would ever admit to you why they admitted liability, other than the fact that they thought it strategically helped them. But there, there must have been there must have been things going well for you as you were working up the case for them to say, we're going to be better off just admitting liability. Sure. And so in this case, I took depositions of the ER team that initially treated Eddie and then the ortho team that treated him. And just based off their statements, their observations, it really got to a point where either all of them were going to be at fault at trial or at least one of them. Because right. you, you have, you know, you have an attending saying, well, it's my expectation that if uh, a resident, you know, can't examine the knee that they're going to tell me and I'm going to examine the knee. Or if a resident has a knee dislocation uh, on their differential diagnosis, yes, of course, that's something I want to know about. And well, how about here, doctor? Well, no, I wasn't aware of any of these issues. And then I, you know, deposed the resident and he goes, well, no, I had a knee dislocation on my differential um, did you tell anybody? Well, yeah, I think I would have told my team or, you know, I couldn't touch his knee. Would you have told people? That? Yeah, I would have told people that. And then even the ER team, um, he was first seen by a physician's assistant, um, uh, who also, he testified, you know, he's in so much pain. I couldn't touch his knee and a wrinkle with him. Well, actually there were two. One was the initial medical records I received had really no documentation from him. So it kind of looked like he didn't see him at all or even try to touch him. And then I think a few days before his deposition, after the lawsuit was filed, I received a note or, you know, showing findings from his examination. And I was like, well, where did this, you know, how did this come about? And his deposition, I think he said something to the effect of, I got a call from medical records. They said, I didn't finish my note. So I went in and finished the note. And I was like, when was this? You know, right. after, after you filed the lawsuit? 
Yes. After wow. I filed the lawsuit. And I even pressed a little bit more like, well, how'd you get this notice? Let me see this email. Um, and I, I remember receiving it. And I think it was to the effect of defense counsel advises, you know, go in and, and enter your note or, or something to that effect. So I thought that was a, a, a bit peculiar. I haven't seen that one uh, before. Um, but also, you know, he's saying, I tried touching his knee. I tried touching his knee. And my client says, you never tried touching my knee. And then I deposed this nurse. And most of the time, nurses or medical professionals in general, they don't remember much in these cases. She actually said, do you remember, you know, what happened? And, and she said, I remember he had his jeans on. Okay, was, well, was the, you know, the pant leg rolled up above his knee or something? No, the, the pant leg was normal or it was rolled below his knee. So the guy's in jeans, it's impossible to examine this guy's knee. And uh, the physician's assistant actually put in a discharge notice uh, 45 minutes after he came to the hospital. They're trying to send him home. Um, and my client just advocated for himself. You know, I can't walk. I can't feel my leg. I'm in a ton of pain. I'm not seeking pills. Like I need to be seen like this is serious. Um, so I definitely thought there was a delay with the ER team, but the ortho team, they really made so many mistakes. They made mistakes in the, the, the several hours prior to performing the fasciotomy and in figuring out what was the underlying cause of compartment syndrome, because usually you got a traumatic injury, you have a, a horrible bone break, or you fall from a great height. You know, here, there really wasn't, you know, you kicked in the leg, you don't really think, oh, you get compartment syndrome, unless what could be another mechanism, a knee dislocation, because knee dislocations typically pop back into place, and the popliteal artery situated right behind the knee, and it's known that it's a serious emergency that must be addressed because you have to rule out a popliteal artery injury or else you're going to lose the leg. Um, so then you have the attendings doing the surgery for the fasciotomy. Um, and he notices that the knee is unstable. He notices a large hematoma, you know, a pool of blood right below where the popliteal artery would be. But he doesn't really explore it. He just makes a note, you know, there might be a knee dislocation here. And allegedly told his team, keep a close eye on this guy. And he headed home. And then the next thing you know, several hours later, his leg is completely cold and essentially dead. And then that's where they finally, you know, get vascular involved and, and try to save his leg. But sadly, it's too late. So the, so the, I mean, so the timeline that we're talking about in order to save his leg is, is hours that they needed to, or, or less than that, uh, to act in order to uh, repair the artery? Is that is that how quickly they need, they should have act? Yeah, well, when they did the fasciotomy, so that was probably about six hours, give or take, after the initial injury. Um, they noted his, his muscle was still relatively healthy. So even then, at the time of surgery, they could have saved his leg. And there are even some opportunities after uh, surgery, but, by the time they started noticing anything, that was about 12 hours after the fact. And they were pretty slow to react even when they saw it. And it took a few more hours for them to conclusively have a plan or take him back for uh, surgery to try to save his leg. So, yeah, there, it could have action could have been taken within the first few hours. Uh, the leg still could have been saved several hours after that and even a few hours after that. Um, but sadly, just there's so many delays, it was ridiculous.
So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like digital law marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website, and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. And, and so all of these uh, debridements or procedures that he was going through, I, I think it was six of them. And, and I mean, so that happened on December 30th to the 31st. He doesn't actually have his leg amputated until January 22nd. So we're talking three weeks later. Uh, so so during that time, they're basically doing all these debridements on him, but he, but at the same time realizing that they aren't going to be able to save the leg or, or what's happening there. Sure. So it was a very trying time for him, obviously. You know, he's getting not the best communication, or at least from his perspective, they seem to be optimistic that they can save the leg. Let's do these debridements. And who knows if behind closed doors, um, they're thinking, well, it's going to be really tough to save this leg. But for three weeks, yeah, he's basically stuck in a hospital bed. Um, He has an external fixator on his leg from the fasciotomies is just completely sliced open. It's, it's quite gruesome. Um, by the way, you, yeah, yeah, um, Jordan sent us some photos, and uh, and they are uh, pretty horrific photos, especially are, when you're not expecting them. <laughs> there are photos in the complaint, and I I have to say that I was like, wow, I've really come a long way because my first year practicing, I think I probably would have been sick because that was like the hardest part of the job for me when I first started was like the pictures. I mean, they are. They're an important part of the story because words can't really describe it, but it is, I can't even describe it now, but it is really kind of horror movie. Like at one point, Jordan, you compared it to a butcher shop, I think in your closing. And it really is like that. I mean, it's, it's unreal to think that this man was laying there for days with a leg like that. I mean, just cut open. I, I just, I really can't even imagine. I, I didn't even think that happened. 
to be honest. Yeah. And not for will, an extended uh, period of time. I mean, is it just like that for an extended period of time for those days while they're trying to maybe save the leg? Yes. Um, so usually with a, a fasciotomy, they, they'll, they'll close the wound up soon after. But here, because they kept going back in and there was an infection, it was basically yeah. out and open like that in a, in a horrific manner um, for 21 days. And he was getting an infection because of that. And it was causing him to have delusions. And at one point, they even had to put restraints on him. So he's also, you know, being restrained. And I think I even told the jury that, like, imagine, like, you go into the hospital and they're supposed to fix you. And then the next thing you know, you wake up and your leg is in that state and you're you're going, you're hallucinating and you're, you're restrained to the bed. Mm -hmm. And they're telling you they're going to save your leg, but but then they say, well, you're going to die if we don't amputate the leg. Yeah, yeah. it's like yeah. I've never seen the movie, the Saw movies, because I'm too scared. But like, I feel like that's what it's like. <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. Unreal. Uh, anyway, hmm. sorry, I didn't mean to derail us, but no, no. It, I mean, it, yeah, it's it, it. The the pictures are uh, it, they're breathtaking. Uh, so. Um, you know, it, it, it's definitely difficult. I, I should have told everybody, and usually I do this, is I, I didn't even tell them what your verdict was, Jordan. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, so the verdict uh, was uh, a total, the, the, the initial verdict uh, was $25,993,331. That was made up of $11.2 million of past non-economic damages, $8.8 million of future non-economic damages, and then $5.993 uh, and some change of uh, future medical expenses. Uh, there was no claim for lost wages or lost earning capacity. Um, and then uh, what was added to that for the judgment was um, it, what's, what's called delay damages of $3,741,204 and then uh, post-judgment interest of $646,000. Uh, for a total judgment of $30 million, uh, $381,145 um, and 60 cents. And, you know, that was the first thing I, I saw when I looked at your judgment there, Jordan, is I, we're, I'm not familiar with what delay damages are. What does that just mean that they had the opportunity to settle the case and didn't? And then there's some sort of uh, something that's added to it because of that. Yeah, it's basically um, if there's a verdict and any prior offers by the defense are just nowhere near what the verdict is, then they have to pay a certain level uh, of interest. Okay. And here their highest offer was, uh, was 3 million. So, which really was, I think within a month of trial. So uh, yeah, it wasn't close. Right. Okay. So I, it'd be similar to like an offer of judgment, offer of settlement type thing that we have in Georgia, where if you beat it by a hundred, your offer by 125%, you get attorney's fees, costs and, uh, and things like that. It's right. really impressive when you think about the amount of that verdict, considering that liability was admitted. I mean, we talk about that a lot, usually not in the med mal context of that being a strategic decision. And then, you know, you keep out a lot of the egregious facts that might get the jury worked up. Although, as I'm sure we'll talk about, there's probably some other stuff in the defense's uh, closing and sort of the positions they took in the case that probably got the jury worked up anyway. Um, but 
I, we, while we're talking about the verdict, um, I did think it was interesting and it's going to kind of tie in, I'm sure, with what we'll talk about later in terms of the uh, post-trial stuff. But did I read correctly that the the defendants are the ones who wanted a year by year um, the jury to fill out an amount that the, it was awarding for each year of the life expectancy? Yes. So. Um, that is standard for medical malpractice cases. We just have a weird uh, state law, which basically says for future payments, you're supposed to itemize it by year. But the parties okay. can still agree and, and you can put in a line for a lump sum. Um, I would have been fine with with either method, but they insisted on on having the line by line for each year. So, so as far so then in that case, your economist basically uh, comes in and and testifies as what the, the each year is going to be, and and then that's what the jury. I mean, because they basically gave you what you asked for in that respect, right? I think you asked for six million dollars in in future um, medical expenses, and I think that was like five point nine uh, nine hundred ninety three thousand. So it's basically six six million. Yeah, the the jury actually paid um, every penny that was on. Uh, that we asked for. Um, and, and you're exactly right in that our economist comes up and, and we'll give the, the general number, but we'll also show a demonstrative of what the amount is for each year. And then there was a, you know, the defense tried making a big issue of that, which was respectfully uh, preposterous. Um, basically making the argument, well, hey, we decided not to call our own economist or we decided not to make our own demonstrative, so we think the jury should figure out these own these complex calculations by year and just, you know, just wing it, which made no sense at all. No, I, I mean, I, come uh, on, people use tip calculators, so like, come exactly. on. <laughs> I, I uh, this is jumping ahead, but uh, in in Jordan's rebuttal, I think the the defense lawyer had gone through basically what he thought the calculations of future medical expenses had would should be, and I think it was uh, maybe a million five or something like that. And you and I don't remember your defense counsel's name, but you basically you were like, well, you know, you know, great job by Mister, you know, whatever, with, without an economist, he's just coming up with it on his own, and you're just supposed to trust him. You know, I thought that was a uh, yeah, I thought that was great. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. That, that got me pretty heated. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that came that came across a little bit in the transcript. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I, so I kept it cool for most of the trial. But <laughs> yeah, essentially what he did was, um, you know, we have the economists. They they base it off the numbers from the life care planners. And, and there's a real formula and, and science to it. And for whatever reason, they decided not to call their economists. I think it may have been because, again, kind of with the theme I was noticing from the defense, seemed like kind of let's nickel and dime this man every opportunity we get. So the the calculation or the formula that their economists used in 2021 was favorable to them. That like you you base it off certain percentages based off what the index is for a certain year of certain categories, um, but the case stalled for a year or two because of COVID. So when the supplemental reports came in 2023, he actually changed his formula a little bit because if he used the same um, formula that he did in 2021, the number would actually be higher. Um, right. So my expert explained a little bit of that. And I'm not sure if that was the reason why they decided not to even call their economists. But basically what the defense attorney was trying to argue was, 
well, we have all these projections for prosthetics and care and blah, 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 blah. But in 2022, you said this to one of my experts, isn't it true that there was only $10,000 in medical expenses or some number like that? And I really, to this day, have no idea where he got those numbers. Um, and so he basically, during lunch or the break we had before closing on, a, on an easel, just took that $10,000 from 2022 and basically explained to the jury, well, yeah, they say he's going to need XYZ or a million dollars this year or 500000 that year. But in reality, let's just base it off 2022 or 2021 where it's $10,000. So really $10,000 a year over the next you know, 44 years, we're looking at half a million dollars or something like that. Um, and yeah, I was pretty infuriated because A, I have no idea where he got that $10,000 number. B, I think that number, if he did find one, would have been maybe like a Medicare type number for the bill, which you can't really bring up in. Right. right. Um, one thing I did do to kind of combat that when I saw him driving that uh, point home with my experts, you know, $10,000 a year was I went to one of their experts and I was like, isn't it true that, you know, Eddie had three socket replacements in 2022? Yes. And isn't it true that a socket replacement is, I don't know the exact number, 50,000 or 70,000? Yes. So then one point I made, like, so even by his own math, he's saying $10,000, but their own experts said he got three socket replacements, you know, 50,000, 70,000, whatever they are. But we know it's a lot more than the 10,000. It just, it just made no sense to me. And uh, yeah, I, I take a lot of pride in, in keeping my cool, but that was just something I had to get a little bit heated for. Yeah. I mean, I think it ended up working out well for you because I think you did object when it happened and the judge who seemed to kind of let, for the most part, let the lawyers just argue the case. But, you know, you know, the judge had basically just said, it's closing, you, you can address it in rebuttal. But, you know, in my mind, I was sort of like, if he's like throwing out numbers for medical expenses, that's not really that, you know, that's not coming from an expert's testimony. That's that's really not closing. That's, that's really not just argument. But at the same time, I think it had to serve you well, because what you were able to st stand up and say in response to that, not to mention the fact that he's throwing out numbers like $8,000, $10,000, um, which just is insulting. I mean, anybody right. who's who's seen their own medical bill for like a physical knows that that's a ridiculous number. Um, so even though I don't think he really should have been allowed to say it, I think it was worked out well that he was that he did say it. <laughs> yeah. It, well, and and I, I would say I, one thing I loved about how you came back at that was um, you you basically said they were trying to take advantage of the fact that he didn't like going to the hospital. And you can understand why Eddie wouldn't want to go to the hospital because the last time he had gone when his knee was hurt, they completely screwed up, you know, and ended up taking his leg. So I, I think I can imagine why a guy like that wouldn't, you know, want to think that, hey, let's go to the hospital because that's that's not a place where good things have happened for him. Sure. Um, well, let, let's go, let, let's back up a little bit. And I, and I do want to talk about this other thing that, so it, it, I guess we should let the, let the listeners know after you got the, the verdict, the, uh, they, they then brought in, from what I understand, a new group of lawyers or several groups of lawyers and they, um, moved for a remitter, but it's under a statute 
that is uh, specific to Pennsylvania or which is the medical care availability and reduction of error act. And essentially under that act, I guess if, if the judge feels like that th this verdict was a, a, excessive or would somehow impair the delivery of medical care in that community, then the judge can reduce the, the verdict. And so they made a motion under this, uh, under this, um, uh, act to try to reduce your verdict. I, I I didn't actually get through to see what they were trying to reduce your verdict to, but, and, and I, and I will say, I did not read the judges, the whole judge's order. I read part of it, but it was a 52 page order that the judge wrote basically going through and excoriating them uh, about all the misrepresentations they made, how they, you know, basically were, were not telling the, the, tr how the trial had actually happened and just took them apart. And, and by the way, we should tell our, uh, listeners, which is a, a you know, a, a another just not only did they admit liability, but uh, they didn't appeal this case other than what what I just said, and and they paid the verdict. Um, from what I understand, is that right, Jordan? That's right. So, but but t tell us a little bit about this uh, this remitter that they tried to file under under this uh, Pennsylvania uh, statute. Sure. So the first point that you mentioned, you know, whether or not the the verdict is excessive. That's that's probably the same analysis you'll see nationwide. Right. Um, the the second argument is where things got a little. Uh, again, it was a bit peculiar. It was a peculiar argument uh, to see. In fact, most people haven't ever encountered this argument. Um, and and the provision under MCare talking about whether or not this will harm the community or harm. Uh, the ability to to get medical care in the community that may very well be unconstitutional if if uh, a verdict were ever reduced because of that but there's basically no case law on it um and and really if it ever were to be applied in theory we're talking about maybe a rural um physician who maybe gets hit with a 50 million dollar verdict and only has a million dollars in coverage and hey, if I have to pay this, I'm going out of business and there's nobody else to treat this rural community within a hundred miles, people are going to suffer. Right. Um, so here, uh, you know, they gave a very general affidavit saying, you know, we're our the community is gonna be harmed, our hospital's gonna be harmed if we have to pay this. And not only did I find it peculiar because it was very broad, there were no actual specifics, but Literally in the in the letter that defense the defendant sent me, where they admitted that they said they're going to admit liability. In that letter, they note that they have eighty five million dollars in insurance coverage. <laughs> okay. So Harvey's like, how are you? How are you truly going to be harmed? Harmed so much where this man who actually was harmed, you know, you're trying to erase his verdict, his just verdict. In a case where you have $85 million of insurance, it just seemed it seemed crazy, frankly. But but yeah, there was a big stir about it. I mean, the legal community, it was in the that type of argument was featured in the legal intelligencer uh, a few times. And and defense attorneys in the in the med mal bar were saying, Oh, yeah, it's a really good argument. Um <laughs> but uh, yeah. fortunately it, it was not a really good argument. All right, so Yvonne, it's always good to be prepared at trial, right? Right. And who can always help you be prepared and your best at trial? 
without a doubt, Legal Technology Services. That's right. And you can look them up at LegalTechService.com. That's LegalTech, T-E-C-H, Service.com. And uh, and they are just fantastic at trial. Our firm has used them for every trial that we've been to. Uh, they're fantastic, always prepared, always helpful. Uh, and uh, you can say hello to Bob, Melanie, uh, Liz or Patrick or any of the other people in their team, but uh, legaltechnologyservices.com. They can help you not only with your technology at trial, uh, they can help you with day in the life videos. They can help you with mediation uh, settlement videos. They can help you with demonstratives, even including, I one time had them build me a model of a panel that was, I think, 12 feet long by 10 feet tall that had fallen on our client and shattered his leg. And they built one for me that I could use in the courtroom. So they're fantastic. Please go to Legal Technology Services and that's LegalTechService.com. I think you said this, maybe it might've been one of the news articles after about, you know, sort of, this is why you do what you do and, and your ability to represent your client and, and, and go against the big guys. But so did you, you know, did you end up bringing anybody in to help you with kind of the appellate issues in this, or were you just, did you handle all the briefing and stuff yourself too, for this kind of novel argument? So I, I did everything myself, um, just got in early, but but thankfully, again, the arguments were not really that difficult to come back. Yeah. I, you know, when I read the the initial brief, I was not that intimidated. Um, yeah. I had to, just had to get back to work. But I will say right. the oral argument uh, for the post-trial motion, that really was a spectacle. Because, um, um, Steve, as you mentioned, there were you know two big law firms that were added to the case. So there are three law firms total. and I just had a feeling at this oral argument, something something different is going to happen to this oral argument today. So I show up about 20 minutes early um, and I'm by myself and I walk into this courtroom and there are about 20 people in suits there, about a dozen attorneys, almost 10 what seem to be uh, hospital executives and a reporter for the local uh, uh, you know, news or legal journal, uh, the legal intelligencer. And I was just like, wow, this really is, this really is a spectacle. This really is quite a show of force. Um, but then it, there's also a part of me that was kind of smiling inside, like, wow, this is why, you know, plaintiff lawyers do what we do. Like, yeah. they're kind of like David versus Goliath. But in my mind, it might be cheesy that I actually thought this. Um, it's just like justice is on my side. Like, I don't care if they have 5,000 attorneys. Like, they lost. It was a fair verdict. Their arguments make no sense. They're not credible. So I don't care. I'm not going to be scared of, of you know, how many attorneys are on the other side. Yeah. Well, and, and by Did the you... way, usually a, a trial judge doesn't like to hear new lawyers coming in and then telling them how the trial was not either they're not doing it. They're saying something that didn't happen or they, or they, they didn't do it correctly. I mean, that, that I've never seen a trial judge who sits back and, and is happy with um, somebody trying to come in and, and say that. Sure. Did you? You, you, so you did have the same, the trial judge is the one who ruled on it? Yes. Okay. Because I know you guys do some weird stuff up there in Philadelphia County. Like you just like show up and get who you get on some cases or like, <laughs> I don't know. I had a Philadelphia case and I was like, who's our judge? And they were like, well, it kind of depends. I'm like, <laughs> um, yeah. So sometimes like with discovery issues or um, 
motions involving pleadings or summary judgment yeah you don't really know what judge you're going to have but then once you have a trial judge the trial judge will take care of any post-trial motion got it yeah yeah it's such a good order i mean like i think my life would be i think even if i didn't have the money i'd just have to retire if i got an order that good just to be like <laughs> i'm going out i'm going out on a high note <laughs> yeah that's right that's right um well let's let's go back and, and talk about i mean so we we kind of went a long ways uh, around talking about that they you know finally admitted liability uh, we, which, by the way, you know, it, we've talked about many times. It's a strategic, uh, uh, you know, move so that they can basically sit there and say, you know, we're real sorry for what happened. We're taking responsibility, you know, kind of get, uh, you know, all of those things. And then at the same time, try and say, you know, all we're here is to make sure that, you know, whatever amount you award is a fair amount. And we just, you know, think that it should be something much less than whatever, you know, the greedy plaintiff's lawyer is asking for. Um but, um, you know, I, I, I really liked, I mean, both of your, op your opening and closing, but what, what I really liked is how you, you spent time, you know, not, not only talking about who Eddie was and what, what he went through, but just talking about this concept that justice means, you know, nothing less than a fair and full accounting of every loss, you know, that, that, that that's the jury's job, that everything else has already been done, that you, you know, they've admitted fault, you just need to, you know, take your time and thoroughly, you know, give, you know, uh, give exactly what the loss was, not more, not less. But uh, talk a little bit about how you developed that theme. And and I, I saw you carried it through not only, you know, in the opening, but through the closing as well. Sure. Um, it's funny, like, it's easy to say in an opening and closing, but now when I have to articulate the reason behind it, it gets a little tougher. Um I think a large part had to do with my client as well, just waiting so many years and then to have last minute the hospital, you know, waiting for his day in court. Because for four plus years, he's thinking, you know, the hospital, they never admitted any wrongdoing. Like, what what do they know that I don't know? Like, you know, we think they screwed up, but they're not owning up to it. And they're they're making us, they're dragging things out. They're not offering any real money. They're making us go to trial. Like, okay, this is finally our time for justice. And then they go, oh, you know, waving, waving the white flag here. We're going to admit default. And, and it's just about, it's just about damages. And so they, and so, yeah, so maybe the defense, they do want to frame it as, oh, they're greedy plaintiffs. And, and, you know, we're only here because, you know, we're not willing to give them a huge amount of money. Um, so they're making it just about dollars and cents and, and they really focused on, you know, their medical expert, you know, saying that Eddie's fine and, and the life care plan isn't that much. And so, yeah, I really just wanted to drive home that like, look, I get it. It's a hospital. We all like the doctors. Um, and we're not asking you to punish anybody. We're not asking for a handout, but this, this thing of fair compensation, like that's a lot more than just money. Like justice really is a real thing, uh, especially, and it's weird, like for this case, because it really was a case. It's not a case about, you know, disputed liability where people are, you know, fighting it out for who's wrong. It was clearly the hospital that was wrong. And at times it was a little degrading or no, it was really degrading, you know, having to argue or advocate on my client's behalf when his injuries were so obvious and so immense and so catastrophic. And so I just really wanted to hit home to them, like, hey, you're not just giving him, you know, the money that he's owed, you know, you're telling him that 
you know, you have a voice that you were wrong, then we heard you and we appreciate you. And we're taking in everything that you've been going through. And we're going to respectfully evaluate the case, analyze the case and give you what we think is fair. Um, so I just really wanted to impress that upon them that this isn't this is more than money. This is about accountability and justice. Yeah, and and uh, it was uh, interesting to read in your closing. It, it, you could tell that you wanted to make sure that the that the jury knew that uh, you know that there was a lot of evidence against them that that showed that the that the doctor in the hospital had had messed up because you talked about how we could have spent you know if they hadn't admitted li liability last week. You know, we could have spent the next three weeks, you know, bringing in all the experts, talk about all the mistakes they made. And we, you know, we're not here to do that. And then you, and then you get into talking about uh, uh, the damages. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, I mean, you, you did a, I, I thought a tremendous job just describing the, uh, not only the amount of pain that Eddie went through all the time, but the different types of pain. And, you know, cause it, cause when you have an amputated, uh, 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 leg you have uh, residual limb pain you have phantom limb pain and then you just have uh and, and i guess because of where because the knee has so many nerve endings in it uh that just causes an, an enormous amount of pain and then of course all of these surgeries but and, and i think you brought in a physiatrist who worked with uh amputees in order to help uh, tell the jury all of that tell, walk through a little bit about what you did with the pain and and how that had really affected his life Sure. So, well, I guess first off, I the my case, I brought out his dad to start. I wanted to focus on the pain that he was experiencing during those three weeks at the hospital where he was visiting his son every single day. And he could see his son, you know, stuck to that bed and crying and in so much pain and the family's crying around him and the thoughts about saving your leg and then realizing your leg's going to have to be amputated. And then um, right after his operation to amputate his leg, I think his dad testified, basically his son saying, hey, dad, I thought they were going to amputate my leg today. It's like, they didn't do it. I still feel my leg. And he's like, no, son, uh, they did amputate your leg. So that was right then and there. He has this phantom limb pain, which is, you know, like a supernatural freaky experience where you still feel like your leg is still there or you can wiggle your toes and not only is that an uncomfortable sensation but oftentimes it can be a very painful sensation and amputees strangely there's a correlation where it's not one or the other it's not residual limb pain or phantom limb pain oftentimes you get both types of limb pain and how you get phantom limb pain, that's not clearly explained in science, but it probably does have a lot to do with just all of your nerve endings. There's so many in the leg and around the knee just get cut. And that's that's a source of pain that causes uh, neuromas. Um, and then the residual limb pain also is somewhat associated with neuromas, but also in his case, he had um, basically a bone growth from the his residual limb. And it's almost like a deer growing antlers. So that too can also press against the skin. And then his uh, incision was pretty horrific as well. And the incision itself is also a huge source of pain. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, and I had the a great expert, uh, Doctor McNevich. I mean, it's it's so great when you have you know it's an amputation case. All she does basically is work with the amputees, and she's been doing it for decades. So it's her life's work. Like she really cares. And uh, there's a lot to talk about though, because there's a lot of yeah. injuries or you know diagnoses associated with the amputation, and. I'm glad I, I thought it through a little bit because my direct with her probably could have been 10 hours if I didn't think of, of streamlining it. And I actually kind of just simply, uh, you know, received a demonstrative that just kind of had bullet points of the diagnosis, uh, bullet points of the prognosis and just very uh, easily just said, okay, what's the next bullet point? You know, phantom limb pain. Okay. Why does he have that? Or can you explain that to us? And, you know, just went down through each bullet point. And uh, I think in a way the jury was able to to digest it. Right. And, and you know, and, and I've had cases with a, a significant amount of pain and how much it, it uh, you know, not only, if, you know, affects them because they're feeling the pain, but also uh, changes in personality, changes in uh, being able to just function, you know, to be even even be able to think clearly because you're in so much pain uh and and it sounded like you uh, developed that as well through some of the family members uh and in, in, in the closing you made the um you sort of basically said that the you know eddie that was is is dead you know and you've got this new eddie um you know who uh, has these uh you know really bad mood swings and um you know can you know you, you're just not sure what you're always going to find because he's going through such significant pain. And, and it sounded like, so his girlfriend, it sounded like they broke up and she was still, she still came and, and was a witness and testified about some of that. She did. She did. So, um, especially with my client being in so much pain and having to deal with the, the awkwardness of trial and that, you know, he's there, he wants his justice, but it also must be difficult for, you know, a young, previously healthy, able uh, human to then have to have this whole trial about how he's disabled and all of the things he can't do and how he's dead, you know, he's a shell of himself and his future is bleak. Um, so I didn't want him to go up on the stand for a very long time and have to explain himself. Plus, again, he might be in pain and that might get him to be agitated or upset. Um, so I very much, you know, wanted his family that saw all this or his girlfriend that saw all this that sees the change um speak essentially on his behalf to you know what they've seen so Did, fortunately uh, so fortunately that girlfriend uh still you know she cared very much and she wanted justice uh for eddie so she testified and um did uh was eddie in the courtroom the whole time um most of the time i think he was there the the whole first day, but then after that, the pain started to get to him. So then it would basically be half days. Okay. And, and I guess, you know, what, what is always important is at some point he gets on the stand and, and how obviously he did great. I mean, it sounds like the jury must've really connected with him, but how, talk a little bit about how, how he did on the stand and how you prepared him for that. Sure. So he may have only been on the stand for about 10 minutes uh, give or take. And again, I didn't, I didn't feel like there was a need to go into these, you know, details. 
because I think everybody could see that he was in pain. Everybody saw photos of the wounds or heard his family speak. So I basically just kept things pretty simple, just in a nutshell, you know, how has this changed your life or, or what do you want from this? Or, you know, how has this impacted you with, with relationships or dealing with your son, you know, or your family or working, or how has this impacted your dreams? Um, and then just, you know, something, so are you in pain right now? Yes. You know, can you describe your pain? You know, it, it ebbs and flows, but I'm always in pain. You know, how did you sleep last night? Not well. How do you usually sleep? I never sleep well. You know, just just basic things where the jury knows about it and they can they can put two and two together and be like, oh, I can appreciate what that must feel like uh, so they can really feel, you know, the full extent of his pain without going into, you know, a ton of details. Right. So the uh, I take it. So he he had been a CNA, uh, but he he was not working since he had his leg amputated. Right. Okay. And then I know you you talked a lot about his love of cooking, and that he had dreams of opening up a, a food truck, and then you know hopefully turning that someday into a restaurant, and that he basically wasn't able to do that. But I, I guess what I'm wondering is, is uh, I mean, it, I, I understand that point of it, but it, but my understanding of the defense is that they kind of uh, brought in a um, like a uh, maybe a, a functional capacity uh, type person to testify about all the things that he that, that they thought he could do, like the the you 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 at one point in your closing went through, you know, they said he could be a bar back, they said he could pick up kegs, they said he could do this, things, you know, that. So it's if if there wasn't a claim for um lost earning capacity or or lost wages what why were they bringing all of that up or is it just to show that he's not as disabled as you were making him out to be sure um well i mean we brought it up in our case right um and and again we weren't seeking any money you know lost wages or or future wages but basically it was something he enjoyed doing so it i think it came under the non-economic perspective of like we all maybe we take for granted, you know, the purpose we get from having a job or having things to do during the day, you know, putting in a hard day's work and feeling fulfilled from that. And so he he lost out on that. And yeah, they they brought in an expert who basically said Eddie can do whatever he wants, um, whenever he wants. And I think that did not sit well with the jury at all. In fact, I remember one juror, I think, commented um, after the trial that they lost all credibility um, in the defense uh, within like one minute of my cross-examination because literally right off the bat I you know I wasn't uh, I just I was pretty calm and I just said Dr. Sarlo you know your first report you said Eddie can do whatever he wants you know work-wise is that correct yeah yeah, yeah that's correct it's like oh okay so he can be a fireman yeah, yeah, you can be a fireman. Like, oh, so you can be a fireman, you know, kicking down doors and going into burning buildings. Yeah, yeah, he can do that. Oh, can you be a police officer? Yeah, like, oh, so you can be a police officer just like chasing a robber, you know, down the street. Um, yeah, or he can be a barback. Yeah, or he can be a construction worker or a, a, a carpenter, you know, 100 stories high on a, on a steel beam. Like, yeah, he can do that. So he just kept saying, yes, 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 he can do it. He can do it. He can do it. And meanwhile, you know, two days earlier, you know, when my experts up there and and Eddie's walking in front of the jury and, and we're taking the prosthetic off and talking about all of his pain and um, and all the 
the issues associated with it. And plus, it's pretty obvious the guy, the guy's missing a leg, you know. So to say he can do whatever he wants in life, and it, it just it was ridiculous, frankly. So it's just they were going too far. It, it was really a case of where, you know, we we kept it very clean. We weren't we weren't trying to say that Eddie can't ever do anything ever again or that he's still in the same state four years later than than he was four years prior. Like we conceded we didn't we didn't hide that, you know, he went on a vacation once a year for a few days. Not to say it was he had a great time in the vacation or that he was pain free. But yes, he he can do that. Or, you know, it took him several years, but he was able to, to drive a car. Right. And yes, he can drive a car. And so they they tried, well, he can drive a car, he can now walk, you know, a lot better than when but he used to be able to walk. And he now has this high-tech prosthetic. So, you know, damages really aren't anything. And to me, again, I just thought it was frankly degrading to say, oh, this guy can drive now. So let's not really award him anything. It's not that big a deal that he lost his leg. Yeah, I noticed you were talking about, I, I can't remember which expert it would have been, but basically that that expert didn't look at photos of um, of Eddie's leg in the hospital, but he did look at like a photo from Facebook of Eddie going to Vegas or something. Yeah. And it's just like when that comes out, you know what a jury thinks about that. Yeah, so I didn't confront him on that on cross. I just remembered in his report, it just, you know, listed the medical records and then it, it listed Facebook photos of him in Vegas, which I don't know why that was a big aha moment or they thought it was because you see a picture of a guy in Vegas with uh, a prosthetic on, you know, so, but uh, yes, I asked him because there were actually photos in the chart. It took a while for them to actually produce it of, of his wounds. And so I go, so that's the only picture you saw. Yes. So in the back of my mind, it's like, okay, I'm going to use that in closing. Like this guy who's supposed to care about the patient and really know of all the medical stuff. The only photo he's looking at, you know, is a photo of him on Facebook that he was provided. And uh, he also, you know, he got a, he got a fair amount of facts wrong. I think he mentioned that uh, I think Eddie had two amputations or, or a revision procedure which maybe they were planning on that. So there might've been one reference that they may do that, but they never did it. So it's kind of like, this is your expert. He's saying this guy had, had two amputations. He only had one. And, uh, you know, I think I tripped them up a little bit because he's trying to say Eddie's not in pain. And it's like, okay, let's go through all of his medical records where it says he is in pain. Right. Um, or he's like, oh, Eddie doesn't really fall and things like that. Okay, well, let's let's go look at the records where it says he he falls. And the main thing they were talking about, too, is they were like, well, this record here says that he's not complaining of back pain because, you know, my expert says, you know, you're walking with a limp or you're sitting all day or you're standing weird. You're going to have associated back pain. And it's going to get worse. But it wasn't like a huge part of the case. And that's all they were focusing on was, oh, here, you know, he told his prosthetist that his back pain was fine, which I don't even know if they ever asked him that. And they're just hitting that. So in my closing, it's I'm just like. I don't know if Temple knows this, but like we're here because this guy lost his leg. Like all they're right. talking yeah. about <laughs> is the back. Like, what are they doing? Yeah. Plus, it's like not it's a, it's a little bit hard to focus uh, on your back when you're having ten out of ten leg pain every day. Like you might not be noticing your back that much. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Jordan, I wanted to ask you if um, you you 
said that you did get to talk to the jury and that they mentioned the fact that uh, they lost one of the experts lost credibility on your cross. Anything else that the jury told you about the trial that that really uh, swayed them or, or was effective with them? Um, so actually, I, I really didn't get a chance to talk to them for too long. I, I showed up a bit too late and, and only a few of them were still there. Um, but that was that was one comment that that resonated with me. Another comment, too, I think someone made was they could tell that I really cared um, about my client and they felt that I was compassionate, too, because there are other you know parties or witnesses that were getting hostile and I was trying to keep it calm. Uh, for the most part. And even when, you know, some of the fact witness testimony, it was, I mean, it was powerful in that courtroom to just, you know, when somebody's saying like, my son is dead, you know, right. that's not like, you know, this is not the person that, you know, was my son. Um, it was just really, you know, powerful. And I, and I would just be like, whoa, like I, I would have to take a second and just like, okay, I need to, I need to just let this uh, let this be said and, and let it let people take it in because it's just so so powerful and it, and it 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 was emotional for me too and I and I've been a part of this case for years so the fact that it was making me emotional um, it was just it was very raw it was very it was very powerful some of that testimony. But but yeah, so I got a little sidetracked there. But I think I think some of the jurors at least noticed and could appreciate that I very much did care for my client. I wanted him to get justice, and and we were keeping it real. We were being authentic. We weren't we weren't exaggerating things. All we really wanted was what he was due. Right. Yeah. Right. I thought it was really effective too. How you pointed out, I think it was in your closing. Like, look, they're saying they're saying they're acting like they're apologizing to Eddie, but they've never looked at him. They're looking at you when they're saying that they're sorry what, about what happened, which happens a lot, right? They, they, you know, if you do get these sort of concessions about things, they're looking at a lot of times they're looking at the jury. Cause that's the, those are the only people they care about in the room at that point. Um, and I thought it was really smart to highlight that, whether whether that was a strategic decision by you or just a genuine gut reaction because you're sitting next to your client you care about and they're not looking at him. Um, I thought that was very striking. I imagine that resonated a lot with the jury. Yeah, I, I don't know if I plan to say that or not. I, I can't remember, but I mean, it really was disappointing just in, in all the ways that they were, you know, we accept fault, we're the good guys, but then- right every single turn to just kind of you know try to screw eddie like they were trying it like life expectancy oh he doesn't have a normal he doesn't have the life expectancy our experts say we need to take five years off of that or just literally every single which way they can they can minimize what he's going through and then yeah the the apology was it was a degrading apology if you're going to apologize for somebody losing their leg at least have the decency to look at the party or even yeah. even if it's just a glance for a split second but it was literally just staring right at the jury oh we're really sorry for what happened to mr parks yeah and uh yeah and and i actually i remember because i was i guess maybe i was trying to prove the point and just 
did you notice that apology? And they, I did, they weren't even looking at Eddie. And then I actually turned around and I looked at the lawyer and the doctor and I said, that apology was unacceptable. Uh, and then I went, and then still even in the closing though, I think they, uh, he apologized again. And again, he just looked right at the jury. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, going back to the life expectancy for one second, where you said they had taken five years or given him a life expectancy, it was five years less than I think what, what your expert had. Um, I, I, you know, it's you caught a slip of the tongue, but apparently they had said, let's lop off five years. And then yeah. you, you, of course, brought that up the way they referred to like, let's just lop five years <laughs> off of uh, Eddie's life. You know, he's not going to live that li those last five years. Um, it's just things like that that just completely undermine what they're doing. Yeah. I'm yeah. Not, you were I, like, like they lopped off it. his leg. I was like, oh, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. rough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it, well, Jordan, this has been a, just a really good, uh, I mean, thank you for going through this with us. I was, you know, just can't help wondering, uh, you know, since you did such a great job, got a great recovery, uh, how is Eddie doing nowadays? You know, Certain things won't change, yeah. but I'd like to think that knowing that he got justice finally, yeah. that he has some sense of closure, and then uh, the money I, I hope will help him in, in certain aspects of his life. Yeah, yeah. The uh, one thing I saw, I think, in one of the articles about when they were talking about the uh, M care, you know, and, and you know their motions there that that uh, Temple University Hospital. Uh, has at least claimed that they're going to change their litigation strategy um, after this. Do you, you have any idea what they're going to change about it? Uh, I don't want to speculate too, too much or go off a year <laughs> right, right. what's been said, but uh, apparently there was, uh, there's been an overhaul. Um, there's a new uh, general counsel um, over at Temple Health and he, uh, he, he, got some other law firms involved and uh you know i hope that the the reinvented strategy is to just do what's right and if, yeah. if you are wrong you are at fault and just offer a, a fair and reasonable amount and because we'll never really know if this case could have been settled because they never offered I mean, they offered $3 million. Some people may take $3 million. It's always a possibility, but you know, to, to, to give me a call and say, Hey, we're, we're going to admit liability. And then uh, also 3 million is our, is our final offer. Yeah. And we have a $6 million, you know, for future meds alone and their own plan, I think was like $2 million. It's like, what, what are we doing here? Right. Um, but it, it seems like they have an interest in, maybe evaluating cases earlier or seeing if cases are able to resolve. Um, but, but we'll see again, I, I try not to speculate on what, on what yeah. the defense bar is, is doing or thinking, but hopefully it'll, it'll help uh, victims of medical malpractice in Philly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, well, Jordan, before we let you go, is there anything else about the, uh, th let me remind everybody, we've been talking about the Parks versus Temple University Hospital uh, case that uh, was tried in Philadelphia last year in May of 2023 and resulted in a $30.3 million judgment. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to make sure our listeners know that we haven't had a chance to talk about about that case? 
Uh, I guess generally, especially for maybe some younger trial lawyers or frankly, any trial lawyer who needs to hear this. Um, you know, I started my firm almost five years ago, and this was actually one of the first uh, cases I got, or definitely first medical malpractice case I got. Um, and I've been practicing, I was practicing maybe four years, give or take, when I started my own firm. And, you know, I'm telling people I do catastrophic injury or I do med mal. And I'm sure a lot of people maybe looked at me weird or saying, oh, he's not really going to be doing that, or maybe he can't do that. And I remember after the verdict, you know, a, an older uh, partner at a defense firm is like, you know, what you did is, you know, should be impossible. Like you can't be a small firm and go up against big firms and try a case by yourself and, and get a really good result. Um, I, I just want to say like, when I started my firm five years ago, if I had to try this, this case, you know, the next day or a week from now, no, it probably would not go well. Right. But I think as trial lawyers, especially younger trial lawyers, if you have the confidence that, okay, I might not be where I need to be, but if I work my tail off and work as hard as I can and constantly want to learn and do inspiring work, like you can get to that place. Yeah. So I, kinda, I guess I, I don't know if I gambled on myself, but like I personally always thought I could get this result. Like everybody says, oh, you got this. Like, you know, what's the secret? Or are you, were you so surprised? And really to me, I, I thought it was a, quite a fair verdict and it, it was a number I was expecting. I, I honestly just kind of felt relieved that my client got a just result and I didn't screw it up uh, when the verdict came down. But maybe I'm rambling a little bit, but just maybe just no. some words of inspiration for, for attorneys who you know, are wondering if, if they can do it. If you're willing to put the work in, you can. Yeah, no, I absolutely. I, I mean, I, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, I, I think I've told this story before, but it, it you know, it, it really does come, come down to, you know, how hard you work and how hard you prepare and, and, you know, and you, and your passion for your cases, but I'll never forget the first, you know, big trial I had against Ford Motor Company. And I had read all their openings. I had read all their closings. I knew how they were going to argue this, and, you know, and I give my opening statement and I literally tell the jury, you know, this is what you're going to hear from Ford and this is why it doesn't make sense. And, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, these guys are seasoned trial lawyers. I mean, they've tried a bunch of cases. There's no way they're going to get up there and just say exactly what they've said before, because I just told the jury they're going to do that. And then they got up there and they said exactly what I told them they were going to say. And it just made me think, you know, like, you know, the, the, the fact that somebody's tried a bunch of cases doesn't necessarily mean that you know they're any any better than anybody else and if you're willing to put in the the hard work and and kind of think about things in a new way i mean uh you know uh a lot of people can do this job it, a lot of it comes down to hard work and passion and and uh and just uh taking the time to think about how you're going to do stuff but um but no it, it, this is a great great result uh great work and um it's been really nice to talk to you let me remind everybody we've been talking to uh jordan strakowski uh jordan is at strakowski strakowski llc and you can look up jordan at actionafterinjury.com uh where you can see his valedictorian speech which was very good i i uh, I, I really enjoyed watching it and it's and it's not too long it was one of those speeches that was you know it was it was uh motivating and 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 uh and inspiring and then and then you're then you sat down and i thought it was perfect so uh anyways it, it's been really nice talking to you jordan thank you it's been an absolute honor uh speaking with both of you and i'm i'm really floored that you all invited me to come on the show no no well this is great work great case and uh and, and believe me uh, uh, 
I mean, I, I'm not kidding. I, I don't think I've heard of any medical malpractice lawyer tell me that they, they went in and tried to admit a lie. I mean, it's very rare. It, you know, it, I'm sure there's a few out there, but it, it is not, it does not happen a lot. Yeah. It, it only comes after a lot of hard work. I can say that for sure. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thanks, everyone, for listening. It really means a lot to me, Steve, and the Great Trials podcast team. And we have a few people we want to thank, right, Steve? That's right. Definitely thank our sponsors, uh, Digital Law Marketing. And you can go to digitallawmarketing.com. Who's next, Avon? And then we've got Legal Technology Services, or LTS. And you can look them up at legaltechservice.com. And then, of course, we don't want to forget Raz and podonthego.com. Yes. And uh, tell, tell Raz we sent you, but um, he is our trusty producer and does great work. So uh, feel free to reach out to him if you need help with your podcast. Hey, we should also thank our law partners because uh, we're uh, our firm has been very supportive. Uh, and that's Harris Lowry Mann. And if you want to look us up, it's at hlmlawfirm.com. And then, of course, we always want you to rate and review us and give a great review if you feel that that's uh, if that's how you feel. Um, and you can go on and do that at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening, guys.